to London Lopate at Large. I'm London Lopate. Spring has been here for over a week, but judging from the weather of the past few days, you'd never know it. Because the northern hemisphere tilts toward the sun during this time of year, we expect to get longer, sunnier days, and that's why many people start their gardens and sow seeds this time of year. Joining us now with some tips on how to go about that is Pete Morosky, an environmentalist and nurseryman and the owner of Native Landscapes and Garden Center in Pauling, New York, a regular on our show. And we invite you to call us now with your gardening questions. Our number is 212-209-2877. That's 212-209-2877. Hello, Pete. Welcome back to our show. Oh, thank you, Leonard. It's always a pleasure to be on your show. The The winter's weather was up and down from a temperature and precipitation perspective, and we, we had periods of mild weather and periods of very cold weather. What impact does that have on most plants that are planning to come up at this time of year? Well, Leonard, one of the things that East Coast plants really thrive on is that you know, they like gradual changes in the weather. And we, when we start getting into weather that has abrupt changes, for instance, and this winter uh, and spring is full of them, like in the last two or three days, we've had unbelievably cold weather, especially up here in the Hudson Valley and all around the New York metropolitan area. We had just last night, for instance, it went down to 15 degrees, which is basically unheard of this time of year in, the, uh, in this part, part of the world. And then uh, last week it was up into the 60s and 70s. So when we get premature warm weather, that's, that gets the cambium of trees, shrubs, and perennials going, and then it, it reaches a point where uh, you know it dives down like it did in, in the last two or three days days, you know, plants can be and can freeze and, and basically uh, pop the veins of trees and shrubs. For instance, it wasn't long ago that I was driving across the George Washington Bridge about uh, a, a week ago when it was really warm, and many of the magnolias were popping out, the facithia was popping out. All this, these early spring shrubs were coming up, and now we're dealing with really cold weather, and, and, and it's a battle now for them to uh, handle this, and it's, it's just not normal uh, uh, temperature and, and weather fluctuations. Don't some people use torches to fight overnight freezes? Uh, you know, when, when there's really cold weather uh, during the time of, of blossoms, uh, they'll, they'll heat, uh, they'll, they'll try and heat the uh, orchards with, with fires. Also, irrigation plays a big role. If you irrigate trees when it's really cold out and uh, you, you, you wet the buds down and you, and, and you wet the flowers down, that little bit of energy that it takes to make to, that water, when it goes from a liquid to a solid, will protect the buds uh, in the long run. But yes, uh, uh, what, what I instruct a lot of my customers to do this time of year is if you know uh, it's going to get really cold, to get out there the evening before and, and water the, the tree buds and, and, and water the flower buds. And maybe that little bit of water will help uh, uh, in regards to freezing, freezing the buds, and, and maybe it'll, it'll save a lot of the flower buds, especially with fruit trees. Well, with, will fruit trees that have damaged buds still bear fruit? Uh, 
Um, it, it, it all depends on the state of the fruit when the real cold weather comes in. You know, there's that vulnerable period just as the buds break uh, and, 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 and you expose uh, all of the, you know, the, the flower uh, uh, parts. You know, and if, that's, if, it's, if it's in that critical stage, then yes, it, it can affect uh, the trees. But if, if the tree is still in a tight bud and it hasn't really popped yet, then nine out of ten times the tree stays safe. But, you know, there's a lot of variables here, Leonard, and, and, and one of the big ones is how cold will it really get to get inside the bud of trees? And as I said before, when it gets down to 15 and 18 degrees, um, it, it really gets into the wood and the bud of the tree, and it can really cause a lot of damage when it gets severely cold like this. Spring is also the best time of year to do planting. So despite the weather fluctuations in the forecast, should people who want to grow plants outdoors just proceed as usual? Absolutely. You know, when it comes to planting in your landscape, uh, you know, trees and shrubs, you know, they can take and handle this cold weather, especially native trees and shrubs. Uh, you know, if you remember, a, a, a lot of this stuff uh, that's grown uh, is cold-hardy to this region and have, have adapted to a lot of these changes in the landscape. And as long as the ground isn't frozen, you can plant a lot of these trees and shrubs, and, and they will acclimate uh, to their new home over the next couple of weeks. In fact, you know, this time of year, we do a lot of transplanting and planting here at Native Landscapes, because if you take trees and shrubs and you move them this time of year, uh, they don't really go into shock, especially before bud break. And, you know, this is a good time of year to transplant big material. You're talking uh, about so indigenous plants, aren't you? Uh, and planting of trees and shrubs, but you got to be careful with perennials and, and especially vegetables because, you know, that's a whole different story. Yeah, well, you, you were talking about uh, indigenous plants, uh, plants that are brought in from other countries may have a different reaction from different parts that's, of the world, may, may right. have a different you reaction know, to the weather uh, if, here. If you think about how, you know, how plants develop, you know, plants that are from Asia, hmm. plants that are from Europe, there's a whole different climate and a whole different set of rules that are going on over in that part of the world. Here in the Northeast, if you think about it, a lot of these native plants have been growing here since the last ice age, uh, which was 10, 15, 20,000 years ago. And they've adapted to a lot of these anomalies that happen now in our landscape. And, uh, you know, each year is a little bit different story. For instance, um, you know, our last frost-free date usually uh, in this part of the world is right around the end of May. And if you can remember two or three uh, years ago, we had frosts right into June. And that's not something normal, but that's something that native plants have adapted to uh, over the centuries of, of living here in, in the Northeast. And, you know, the climate is changing a little bit, but it's also, you know, we still get these real cold weather, cold weather uh, situations like this winter, we've, we we went into a, a, a kind of a cold freeze uh, in January and February, which hardens a lot of these fruit buds off. And it was the first time in many years that it, I can remember the lakes and ponds freezing solid enough to skate on. And and and, it, and a lot of times in a lot of other 
parts of the world, that generally isn't the case. Either the humidity is different or the soils are a little different. So, you know, that's the difference between our native plants and, and exotic species that come from a lot of other places uh, on the planet. But this is not just a local situation. I saw a documentary recently that suggested that many uh, areas where wine grapes are grown in France are now having to close down. In fact, England, which never was hospitable to wine grapes, is now becoming a good place to grow them. Well, you're exactly right, Leonard. And and if and if you look at trends across the planet, for instance, you know our growing season here in the Northeast has added two or three weeks on to its uh, season, and things are starting to bud out and starting to grow a little bit earlier than usual. So, you know, like you said, a lot of these grapes can now be grown further north or into other regions. And a lot of thing, a lot other things that you need to that we need to concern ourselves about is it's not only temperature, but it's precipitation. A lot of rain, like for instance here in the Northeast, we've become a much rainier climate. Uh, if you look at averages over the last 10 or 15 years, it's, it's, we're getting much more rain than what we used to get, uh, let's say, 20, 30 years ago. And grapes uh, to make wine and, and just grapes to, uh, when, when fruiting, they prefer a little bit of a drier scenario. That's why grapes do so much better in California and in drier climates. We're here on the East Coast. I mean, grapes do fine in areas like Long Island because they've got sandy soils and a lot of this moisture is, is able to evacuate out of the soils, but they got to be careful with funguses on the grapes, funguses on the leaves, and whenever you got a situation where your climate is changing, you're getting wetter. You really got to look at the big picture and and figure out, you know, what kind of problems can I anticipate this growing season? So, how close to reality is that old saying that April showers bring May flowers? Oh, it's very, you know, this is a rainy time of year. You know, spring brings a lot of water. Uh, even the wintertime, uh, you know, snow melt saturates uh, the soil. Our soil is, this time of year, is the wettest it'll be. And plants need that in order to, you know, get their photosynthesis going before leaf break. You know, wet soils give us leaves and give us flowers. And, you know, there have been a couple of springs where the soil was very dry and uh, it, it was a muted type flower season. So you're absolutely right. Uh, April showers bring May flowers, bring June fruits. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org is Pete Morosky. Uh, an environmentalist and nurseryman and a regular contributor to this show. He's the owner of Native Landscapes and Garden Center in Pauling, New York. That's in Dutchess County. And when he's here, we take your calls. Our number here is 212-209-2877. Does the fluctuating weather mean that spring plants, the bulbs and such, will be blooming a little later this year? Well, it, it, it is, and, it, and a lot of it, a lot of it depends on what kind of weather are we looking at in the next month or so. What you about know, ticks and other insects? Very cold weather uh, this past week, which kind of shut everything down. But now I'm looking at the long-range forecast, and it's supposed to get a little bit warmer and a little bit wetter over the next two or three weeks. And, you know, 
there's a lot of variables here, Leonard, that that affect uh, the growing of trees, shrubs, and perennials, and 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 vegetables, and a lot of it has to do with the sun's angle. You know uh, how cold it's going to get at night. How warm will it get? It will it get during the day? Is it going to be a cloudy spring? Is the sun going to come out? So we got to look at the big picture, and it, it all affects uh, how how vigorous plants will grow in the next month or so. Well, what impact will the fluctuating weather have on the ticks and other insects that come with the spring? Well, because it was a fairly mild winter in regards to temperatures, uh, the, the ticks are going to be pretty bad this year. I mean, I've, I go out in the woods quite a bit uh, hiking uh, with my dog, and um, at the end of the hike, uh, you know, we do a tick check, and so far it seems like the ticks are in a pretty bad way. Mm. You know, and, 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 you know, ticks are also... Uh, and the amount of ticks and the amount of ticks there in the woods are also affected by the type of vegetation you have in the woods. For instance, and I know this sounds crazy, but if you go into the woods that are loaded with barberry, that have a lot of invasive species, it seems that the tick population is higher there because if you think about how barberry works in the natural world, it's a, it's a very dense plant. It's, it's full of thorns. Uh, the birds can't get into the plants to eat the ticks. So the, and, and then when it, when it gets dry, uh, the humidity almost acts like an incubator. So when ticks lay their eggs in this barberry patch, uh, more more ticks will hatch, and as you go through these barberry patches, a lot of a lot of um, uh, ticks will cling onto your pants. And you know, one of the things too, Leonard, that I noticed over the years is body chemistry plays a big role in, the, in how many ticks that you get on your body. Twenty people can go through a patch of woods that are loaded with ticks, and ten of them will come out with a hundred ticks on them. Another. Ten, uh, five will come out with a few ticks on them, and others will come out with very few ticks on them. So, it's and, and I've seen this uh, leading walks into the woods as we all come to the end of, of our walk, and and we we we, we kind of check each other for ticks that you know the odor or 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 the type of. Um, aura that we have uh, that, that comes from our skin uh, affects the amount of ticks that will cling to us and that'll, that'll, that want to bore into our skin. Well, a lot of people like to walk, especially now that the weather is going to get a little better. And your garden center is located along the Appalachian Trail, uh, which uh, I understand is celebrating its 100th anniversary this year. Um, should we assume that uh, there are going to be ticks along the uh, the Appalachian Trail as well? We should, Leonard, and there's going to be ticks everywhere. But one of the things that you might want to do if you're hiking in the woods is stay on trail. For instance, don't go out in the woods and blaze into the woods and go into areas that are very seldom uh, hike through uh, because that's where you're going to pick up the most ticks. But if you stay on a trail where you've got a little bit of a buffer between you and the shrubs around you, you tend to not pick up as many ticks as you would as if as if you blazed or went off trail. So that would be my biggest recommendation to everybody who's hiking. Yes, uh, you're going to encounter ticks, but you're going to encounter very few or much less ticks if you stay in the middle of the trail and try not to brush yourself against shrubs that may be growing on the edges of the trail. I'm sure that many of our listeners uh, grow their plants indoors. Uh, 
Does all of this weather have any impact at all at indoor gardening? Um, it does, um, especially when we're dealing with uh, uh, a, a lot, a lot less sun. Recently, it's been a, uh, it's been a cloudy, and and when it stays fairly cloudy, you know, plants can't conduct the photosynthesis like they would like to uh, from an indoor plant standpoint. Even the cold weather, Leonard, when it gets cold like this, um, you got to remember, too, that the relative humidity in our homes drops in cold weather. So uh, in, in very cold weather, uh, the, indo- the inside of our apartments or the inside of our houses tend to get almost desert-like. So what we need to do, especially this time of year, uh, because plants do sense that we're getting more light, especially if you're growing your indoor plants along the east or west windowsills or, 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 or on the south side of your, you know, your 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 house. You know, they can sense that in the month, month of March we gain more light than any other month of the year, and 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 plants sense that. So they want to they want to grow and reproduce and flower. You know, this is their time of year too. So. If we don't maybe mist our indoor plants on a regular basis and, you know, make sure that they're getting plenty of water, especially this time of year, uh, that they're going to respond, you know, much better. And just remember, and and we've had this conversation with some of your your callers in the past, be careful not to overwater your plants. I think that's one of the most common mistakes uh, people make when it comes to indoor plants. You know, water heavily, but let the container almost dry out completely before you water again, and, and plants will respond to that type of treatment for the most part. Don't some houseplants do more than just prettify a room? Don't some also clean the inside air? They do, Leonard, and a lot of plants remove toxins uh, from the air and from the environment. In fact, uh, NASA conducted a study of plants that remove toxins from your indoor environment, and I created a little bit of a list here that I'd like to go over with you on plants that purify the air that you might want to consider creating a healthier indoor environment, especially in houses that are sealed, that you're not able to open the windows and you're not able to circulate the air in the house, like aloe vera. Aloe vera is a great plant not only for your skin, but it, it, it also purifies the air. Many of the palm trees, you know, require a lot of light, but they also purify the air in your house. Um, the banana plant, which is the musa, uh, you can get, uh, you can buy or get a dwarf musa plant, and, uh, you know, it likes humidity, and if you spray it, it'll, it'll uh, take a lot of the pollutants out of the air. Once again, it, it, it requires, uh, the banana plant requires a a bright location. Boston ferns. You know, Boston fern is some of the most beautiful fern you can have in your house. They make great hanging baskets if you wanted to put them a close close uh, to, a, uh, to a window, um, it, it, they hydrate the air. So in other words, you know, Boston, uh, Boston ferns kind of sweat a little bit, so they'll bring the relative humidity uh, up in your house, 
and and it's also one of the top-rated plants for removing uh, pollutants in your home. Uh, mums, you know, we're all we're all about mums in the fall uh, to put them outside, but you can buy mums now just about any time of year, and they'll flower basically all summer. So putting a couple of mums in the house will also give you a little bit of um, a, a, a little bit of flower and, and also clean the air. There's also a plant called um, devil's root. Which has a very, which is a tropical vine, is heart-shaped leaves, and is a, uh, it was a feature plant in the NASA Clean Air Study, and it removes air pollutants such as uh, formaldehyde, xylene, benzene, and many other the pollutants found in, in, in house cleaners. Uh, Diffenbachia is another great plant. Uh, the date plants. Um, the flamingo lily. Now, this is a uh, this is a plant that I have in my house. It's a glossy green plant with red flowers, and one of the most stunning flowers you'll find. And this time of year, with the increase of light, this plant just can't produce enough flowers. And with the dark green foliage, with that red flower and the dark green foliage, it really makes a, a, a beautiful plant. Um, the, uh, the, the lily tuft or the monkey plant uh, improves indoor uh, air quality. Even orchids, orchids, <laughs> orchids, uh, especially the, the moth orchid, you know, they do their job of cleaning the air and getting rid of toxins in the air. So, so, wait, wait, so all these toxins are their food? Well, they're their food, but they're, 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 they also, you know, plants perspire or they breathe uh, in their own special way. So, you know, they take in the air that's in the room around them, and when they do that, either through their leaves or, or through the soil, you know, once they're done, uh, you know, with, with the air, they'll release air that is much more environmentally friendly. And one last plant that I'd like to mention, Leonard, that's really important is the spider plant. Hmm. Everybody knows spider plants. Uh, they're very adaptable house plants, <clears throat> and they have tremendous, tremendous air purifying qualities. Well, so they not only prettify our homes, but they also keep us healthy. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, what I would do, who, who, if you're somebody out there who, who wants to bring some of these plants into your home, uh, remember, we always say this, right plant for the right location. You know, send pictures, go down to the local greenhouse um, uh, or, or nursery uh, with pictures of, you know, what, what face your, your windows are. And, and, and a lot of these garden centers and, and florists will know exactly what type of plant can thrive in your particular location. Because uh, whether the window is facing north, south, east, or west uh, will have an, an impact on the health of the plant? Right. Each one of these plants, where they grow naturally, have adapted to some type of exposure in the natural world. Remember that a lot of these plants are tropical. So if you think about tropical plants and where they grow, they grow in the understory of tropical forests. So what you want to try to do is you want to try to mimic the environment where they grow naturally, and then these plants will thrive. So the important thing is, First of all, exposure, moisture, and, you know, the type of soils that they require. Even cactus uh, are great 
indoor plants and, 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 and have their attributes. But what you want to do is you want to show uh, the garden center or, or the florist the type of exposure you have, and they will direct you to the plant that'll thrive in that particular location. In a few minutes, we'll be taking listener calls. Our number here is 212-209-2877 if you want to speak with Pete Morosky, my guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. Environmentalist and nursery man, owner of Native Landscapes and Garden Center in Pauling, New York. And uh, we invite your calls at 212-209-2877. That's 212-209-2877. In the past, we've talked a lot about the whole matter of, of uh, ecological gardening, uh, which you advocate. What is that? Leonard, I'm going to tell you a little story. If you remember, <laughs> if you remember the first time I was on your show back uh, about eight years ago, um, when you were on uh, WNYC, the very first question you asked me was, what is native landscaping? Mm -hmm. And if you remember, I, I went into the whole New York City metropolitan area when it was wilderness and, and, and the time when, when um, most biodiverse temperate regions of the world, how early explorers tell stories about sailing around Manhattan Island up the Hudson River when it was pristine wilderness. And back then, before it was developed, uh, you know, there were ecosystems that thrived in different type and different parts of the New York metropolitan area. For instance, Manhattan had like 75 different ecosystems. The New Jersey Meadowlands were one of the, the, the greatest uh, waterfowl resting places on the planet. And what and then the, and then up here in the Hudson Valley were one of the was 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 a mountain wilderness that had all kinds of of animals and plants and insects. And you know, this is what keeps the natural world alive. This whole symbiotic relationship that exists between plants, animals, and insects, and they thrive off of one another, and this is how uh, this is how it all works in the natural world. And you know, one of the things that I try to instill in my customers is that if we can mimic a lot of these ecosystems and these uh, uh, natural areas in our landscape, then what we're doing is, you know, we're feeding and bringing in the plants that butterflies 
hummingbirds, you know, uh, 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 June bugs, and all of these insects that thrive on these plants. And then, you know, it's a pecking order. You know, once we bring in the plants that these insects thrive off of, then when the bluebirds come migrating up the East Coast like they're doing right now, they time a lot of their migrations on hatches. So the only reason why these these insects are 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 there, and that's what feeds these these birds. Are you know it, they all work together as a team for uh, for for survival uh, to be, to be survivalists in this whole natural world. Now, if we start bringing in plants that are not indigenous to our area, we're creating what's called dead zones in our environment because a lot of these birds and a lot of these insects haven't adapted to digesting a lot of these plants that come from either Europe or Asia. So they need these native plants in order to survive, and that's what keeps this, this whole ecosystem going. And it's, it, it, it's so important that uh, we continue to do this on a grand scale. And as you know, uh, your friend and my, Douglas Tellamy, says all the time, we've got to tr- create this whole national park uh, 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 um, a zone between everybody's yards so that we could bring in these native plants and we can sustain wildlife in our area and, and, and why these native plants are so important to the natural world. We're going to take some calls, take calls to our guest, Pete Morosky. Again, the number is 212-209-2877. BAI, you're on the air. Hi, how are you? Okay, how are you? Good. Good, good. They've been calling me Green Thumb since I'm a kid. Um, I know these changes that we're seeing seem frightening, but I know they are natural to a certain extent. Now, just two days ago, I divided up my daffodils, and the flowers that are on there, they are hurting. Now, could you please clarify, sir? Um, you mentioned water before a freeze. I always knew it was good when it's very hot to prevent fruit drop, but... Uh, Water before freeze, as well as, I guess it's obvious to mulch as much as possible the roots during the whole year. Thank you so much. Was yeah, there a question Mr. there? Thumb, um, <laughs> what's, what, what you got going on there is you, 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 you broke up your daffodils. Uh, so you put them under a little bit of stress, and not only uh, did you did you put them under stress by breaking them up, and this happens all the time when we cut up perennials and any kind of bulbs, uh, but just after you did that, it got really cold. Now, don't blame yourself for these bulbs and these daffodils for fading a little bit, because they're fading everywhere. I mean, I was out driving by, you know, daffodils came out, up by Hus in the Hudson Valley about two or three days ago, and when we got this 15 degree weather, these these flowers literally shriveled up uh, in, in a matter of hours because it just got too cold for them. So when you break in, and this is a great time of year to break break up perennials, to break up uh, you know to transplant, to do anything like that. The key is uh, you know w- when you put them back into their new uh, location to water them in really good, give them a little bit of compost, you know, make sure you're, you're, you're doing something to alleviate that stress that they've gone through uh, from breaking up. Now, daffodils are very tough, okay? Uh, they may fade, and, and, and you may uh, lose them a little bit uh, this spring, but next spring they'll be back better than ever. You, uh, you're suggesting that you have to put the right plant in the proper location, how do we know what the proper location is? 
Well, every every plant has got you know a, a cultural uh, requirement, and what that means is that you know where was this plant growing naturally, and what type of environment does it like? And I'll give you a few examples of native plants like swamp azaleas. Okay, you, you know if you got an area in your yard uh, that's fairly wet, uh, that's on the edge of a swamp, this would be a perfect spot to plant these swamp azaleas because that's where they grow naturally, in an area where they have wet feet and a little bit of dappled shade, where they're out of the wind. I mean, you know, uh, you don't want to plant these shrubs up on the hillside where they're getting blasted by wind. They just won't survive. So what you want to do is you want to, first of all, you know, landscaping can be expensive, as we all know. And the last thing you want to do is fail at it because it, it, it costs you a lot of money. So what you want to do is you want to do a little site analysis. You want to look around your property and find out what type of exposure do you have? What type of soils do you have? You know, what type of plants will survive in my particular location? And I'll, I'll, the big problem a lot of people make is they force a plant into an area where it just doesn't grow naturally. You know, if, you got, if you're in, in a sunny location and uh, you've got a, a, like up here, which, which we have a lot, where you've got a, a pH, where you've got some alkaline soils, soils you know, you want to bring in plants that survive in that particular environment, like yucca and potentillas. If you sit under a tree canopy, a canopy and you've got real moist, or not moist, but you know, peaty soils from all the oak trees and the maple trees that have been dropping uh, on, on your landscape. What a great place for rhododendrons, andromedas, and plants like that, hollies. So you want to get to know your environment a little bit and bring in plants that grow in that particular environment naturally. pH plays a big role. Uh, exposure plays a big role. Moisture plays a big role. And the type of soils you have, are they sandy soils? Are they, are they dry soils? Are they wet soils? Are they full of compost? You know, these are, oil, these are all things that you have to define before you start working on your landscape. Okay, well, let's take another call. Again, the number 212-209-2877. WBAI, you're on the air. Yeah, hi. Um, I'm actually trying to figure out how to keep something from growing. Uh, every time I make a California dip with the uh, sour cream and the onion soup mix, I get to enjoy about half of the pint before I open it up, and it's all full of this blue mold. Is I assume they're like mold spores in my kitchen or something like that. Is there anything I could do to clear clear that out so that this doesn't keep happening? Well, there's mold spores are in the air everywhere, and uh, you know when you expose uh, certain types of uh, materials to the air, it'll grow the spores. Um, and the spores will grow, and, 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 and it'll get into whatever material that, that it likes. Um, you know, the, the key to that is uh, keeping it covered and, 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 and keeping it maybe in the refrigerator or whatever. This was, uh, this was a type of dip, you said? What did he say it was, Leonard? That he was uh, he, he said it was, su- it was, I thought he said it was soup. Oh, soup? Yeah. 
Yeah, when he's done with the soup, you know, throw it in the refrigerator or freezer, and 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 yeah. you know, there's certain temperatures where the mold won't grow. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think it was the the, uh, the the dry stuff of the soup. But anyway, I'm sorry that he hung up because uh, yeah. <laughs> we could well, have done a follow. I needed a little bit more information to help him. Meanwhile, uh, but oh, by the way. If people want to get in touch with you when we're not on the air, is there a place they can write to you? Yeah, you can write to me at Pete at nativelandscaping.net or NL Pauling, P-A-W-L-I-N-G at gmail.com. Or you can call me here at the Garden Center. Our phone number is 845-855. 7050. Okay, well, they can always look that up. Uh, let's take another call. BAI, you're on the air. Hello. Well, good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you guys doing? Wonderful show. Wonderful show today. Thank you. You want to uh, speak to Pete? I have, a couple, I have a couple of questions for you guys. Go ahead. Um, you have a yeah, question from Pete, not for me. <laughs> no, Leonard, I want do you you're gonna to try to answer the question first and I'll help no, you. No, 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 no. <laughs> Either but you're okay. If I wanted to start <laughs> growing um like any hydroponics indoors, like where where would I start? That, um, that's my first question. You wanna grow uh vegetables or hydroponic plants and where do you start? Is that the question? Yes, yeah, so, yeah, so vegetables. Vegetables or fruits. Yeah, you know, there's there's a lot of hydroponic kits now. Um, you can get them at a lot of garden centers. You know, you can get them online. But I would start there. Uh, you know, uh, you know, purchase a hydroponic kit. Uh, you know, research um, the type of plants that will grow uh, that you want to grow, and uh, purchase a kit that will um, that will uh, gr- uh, that will grow the type of hydroponics you want to grow. I mean, I think that would be your best bet. Uh, so hydroponic kits, figure out what you want to grow, and then take it from there. Okay, and thank you. And my question number two is, if I'm, if I'm going to the Caribbean, and let's say the fruits or foods that I want over there they don't have in the local area, how could I take seeds from here and plant them over there in my own garden? Wouldn't that be so breaking you your to... rule, Pete, uh, uh, bringing plants uh, to an area where they're not indigenous? Yeah, you. Um, it's it's very tough to do that. There are a lot of rules and regulations about about moving plants from one part of the world to another uh, because of insects and funguses and 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 and, and soil issues. I okay. think the best thing to do would be find the seeds of the plant that you would like to grow. Um, uh, from other parts of the world, and, yeah, and yeah, you know, see if you can have seeds. them shipped to New York and then start them here. You're less likely to create environmental issues that way. But um, you can look things up, and 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 they'll let you know whether or not uh, plants like that can be shipped to the United States. Okay. No, I didn't want to ship the seed. I wanted, I wanted to ship. I mean, I wanted to ship the seed, not the plant. Okay, you want to start them from seed. Yes. Yeah, local yeah. plants. That, nine out of ten times, most seeds that you buy uh, from other regions of the world are, are, are you know, I, I don't know how the regulations are, but a lot of it, a lot of it has to do with the type of plant. And um, what you might want to do is just, you know, Google uh, the plant that you want to ship. 
to New York and, and or to the United States and see if, if they'll allow you allow you to ship this plant through customs or whether or not there's some kind of beetle uh, or or some kind no, of no, uh, Pete, Pete, he wants or, a or fungus that won't allow that that'll that'll Pete. escape uh, because we've had a lot of problems with plants and uh, being shipped all around the world that have created a lot of problems with elms and hemlocks. But and, Pete, can I yes. interrupt? As I understand it, he wants to take seeds that for plants that he likes here, and then yes. plant them in the uh, the, the new in location. The yes, correct. Oh, oh, to plant them in the new location. Yeah, not yeah. to bring uh, plants. Once again, it's it, it, the same rules and regulations apply. Whatever, uh, whatever rules and regulations are in effect in the area where you want to plant them, uh, make sure that. You're not breaking any laws or you're not breaking any regulations. And if that's the case, then, you know, I would say feel free to plant them, uh, you know, wherever you want to. Okay, thanks for your call. Cool. Cool. Uh, Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. And this is WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Pete Morosky, who is an environmentalist and nurseryman and the owner of Native Landscapes and Garden Center in Pauling, New York. We are taking your calls at 212-209-2877. Let's take another call. BAI, you're on the air. Hi. Hi. This is Rose from Flemington, New Jersey. You two guys are a national treasure. (laughs) I want to make a quick I wanna make a a quick comment and a and a question. Uh, I'm a big devotee of beneficial nematodes and also of sulfur. My mother had the best plants with just sulfur against bugs. We hear oh. that there's a new uh, spider coming to New Jersey, one of those imports. <laughs> um, is there any benefit to using beneficial nematodes against a spider like that? Because uh, we well, have to do you know, that at, at the end of, end of the, of the, uh, the freeze season. And also the um, lanternfly. Yeah, the lanternfly. You know, there are there are treatments for the lanternfly, and that's that's a big problem right now, working its way up the East Coast. And what you want to do is you want to be insect or parasite specific in your treatment of any of these insects or uh, or problems. And once again, you know, you know, go to go to the you know New Jersey Cooperative Extension. You know, there's a lot of uh, scientists and botanists and and entomologists that are in place at a lot of these locations, and they will direct you on the the best treatment. And of course, uh, if you're going to ask me about what would be the best treatment for for situations like this, it's the most environmentally friendly treatment. You want to stay away from any kind of pesticides that are, you know, not only killing uh, the lanternfly or, or or the other. Uh, insect that you want to treat, but you don't want to be polluting the environment either. And let's talk about these nematodes a little bit uh, that you mentioned. I, uh, I'm a big fan of nematodes. I think they're a great, uh, a great addition to the landscape if 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 you're being um, parasite or insect specific when it comes to treating them. Just remember that when you order them, and a lot of these. These uh, nematodes come from from mail order that uh, they have a very limited shelf life that you want to, you know, uh, there's this, this certain times in the season where you treat these things uh, when, when, when they're creating problems and you want to make sure you order these nematodes at that particular right time and then put them into the environment where they're going to give you the most benefit. Okay. 
Great. Thank you. Thank you. Let's take another call. BAI, you're on the air. Hello. Hello. You have to make it quick. We're kind of running out of time. Can you hear me? Yes. Oh, okay, fine. Hey, it's me again with the uh, moldy uh, uh, dip. Okay, go uh, ahead. I got cut off. Okay, so uh, you had, it was a moldy dip. Yeah, it was yeah, a moldy yeah. and dip, and what are we dipping into this dip? Uh, is this just like a potato chip dip, or is, is yeah, this a yeah, exactly. Frito yeah. dip? What kind of, uh, what kind of, uh, and what's in the dip? Is it an onion with, with, with cream cheese and, and, and all that wonderful stuff that I can't eat anymore? <laughs> Yeah. No, it's a classic California uh, dip recipe in the back of the Lipton onion soup, dry soup mix. And you're trying to keep the um, the spores out of it, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, well the thing you got to do is, you know, the, you got to keep the air away from it because that's where your mold spores are coming from. In other words, what I would do is I would take the dip out of the container put it on like a, a plastic or, or, or a, 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 a plate, and then cover the dip right up and put it back in the refrigerator. If you leave the dip standing out there, then the mold spores that are in everybody's air and in everybody's house will get in to the dip. So you, wanna, you, wanna, you don't want the dip to be subject to a lot of air exposure. Take the dip out, shovel, uh, spoon it up into a little into a little dish, cover the dip, dip up, and, 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 and put it back, and you're going to find that it'll stay fresher that way. Excellent. Thank you. All right. You're welcome. Thank you so much. Let's go to our last caller because we're running out of time. BAI, you're on the air. Yeah, hello. Hi. How you doing? This is Mike from Brooklyn. I want to ask you, when you bring home flowers sometimes from the garden shops or something, there's small bugs on them you don't see till later. Is there a way to get rid of those bugs, thryphids and iphids and all these type of things? Yeah, what you want, there's a couple of things you want to do to keep flowers fresh, especially coming from, uh, you know, the, the garden center. And, and, and what you want to do is you want to take each flower out and run water across uh, along the stem, and that will wash a lot of the bugs that may have gotten attached to that. Another important thing, take a fresh cut in that flower stem before you put it in the water so that the plant will start drawing up a lot of water from the vase that you're keeping it in. But just cleaning, cleaning that stem off of, of some of the mealy bugs or some of the gnats that may have gotten onto that um, stem and then, uh, and then making a fresh pot, uh, cut and putting in water, you'll find that they'll last a week or two uh, doing that. Thank you for your call. In just the, uh, the last moment and a half, uh, this is also spring cleanup time when we start removing debris, sticks, and branches. And uh, you say we should leave mulch and compost in place, but also that uh, we should cut weeds rather than pull them. That's right. Um, you want to cut weeds rather than pull them because if you pull weeds out of the ground, you open up the soil to all kinds of weed seed germination. So when you cut the, when you cut the weeds at, at the ground level, you keep that soil sealed, and, and, and not much will germinate in a, in a sealed soil. Also, from an ecological standpoint, you know, this is the time of year where you wait to the last minute when it comes to cutting down perennials because a lot of our birds are, are eating eating a lot of the seed heads that have adapted, uh, that, that, that have been there all winter. And instead of 
you know, cutting them down and removing from the garden, garden, chop them up and make that your natural mulch because there's a lot of uh, seeds in those flower heads that will also proliferate in the garden and will create more uh, uh, more flowers in the garden. Pete, and we have to leave it there, unfortunately. We've leave run it out there of time. because it'll keep the weeds down. It'll give you more flower. And also, leaves have a lot of beneficial insects living in the leaves. Leaves are... Get, get get a lot of uh, have a bad reputation, but they they shouldn't because leaves are so beneficial to the natural environment. Uh, they they keep moisture in the ground. Beneficial insects live in the leaves, so uh, you know tolerate the look of the leaves and and keep them in there. And I, when I say keep the leaves in the garden, keep it three or four inches thick. Pete, Don't keep it feet thick. We have to leave it there. Problem, but spread those leaves out in a nice three or four inch layer in the garden and. You'll find that, uh, you know, the plants, once the leaves decompose, uh, will love that, and and then you won't have to Pete, thank you so much. Pete Murawski, M-U-R-O-S-K-I, environmentalist and nursing man, owner of Native Landscapes and Garden Center in Pauling, New York. Always a pleasure talking with you. Uh, But that brings us to the end of our show. And uh, if you'd like to check out more of our one-hour interviews on one subject, you can access our archive of over 600 shows at WBAI.org or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. You'll also find links to our past shows at LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. And if you'd like to reach me directly, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Right now, I need to ask you to consider stepping up and supporting WBAI as we struggle to stay afloat during these difficult times. We are asking all of our listeners who haven't taken that step already to make a tax-deductible contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org. That's given them the number 2, WBAI.org, or by calling 212-209-2950 right now to keep this show coming to you from 1 to 2 p.m. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. During Women's History Month, we're offering the 8 gig Gigabyte Women's History Collection and a WBAI tote bag to everyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $15 a month or more. You'll have to do it soon because tomorrow's the last day of the month. But please give us that call right now, 212-209-2950, or go online to give to WBAI.org to help support independent radio. We depend 100% on listener donations. And we hope that you'll join us again tomorrow when Andre Henry will discuss his book, All the white friends I couldn't keep. I hope to see you then.